jump into what we're going to talk about today because uh, it's important. This uh, is the second day of Vision Provision Sunday. And this year I made kind of a, an executive decision. And by executive, I mean I did a good bit of praying and then did a good bit of kind of field research by talking to you about uh, not just giving this talk once, but actually giving it two times uh, week to week today. And so for those of you that were here last week, I'll explain why this is important that we refresh this. For those of you that are here for the first time this week, this is an important talk for you to hear. Uh, in our body, because of the portable nature of it and just the nature of culture, uh, some of you were working last week. Some of you were unable to be here last week. Some of you were in service ministries around this building, and kids or working with students or hospitality in the foyer. And so this is a pretty foundational talk, one that we give each year right around this time that begins to lay out the direction of where we're heading um, for 2017. So if you were here last week, you were encouraged to return, and a great many of you have, but to return having prayed over the action steps, I will represent to you in the back end of this talk, this is our message this morning. If you are here for the first time today, then what we want to do is ask you to consider what we're talking about. This is a great opportunity if you're visiting to hear a little bit about who we are and where we're going. And if you were not here last week and are a regular partner or member or have just been t attending with us for a while, this is a great opportunity for you to be exposed and to figure out you know, what God's place for you might be in this upcoming year. And so we call this Vision Provision because it essentially lays out a little bit of where we've been and where we are going. This is not obviously an exhaustive uh, diatribe on both of those areas, but it gives us a touch point to be able to figure out uh, how God has been good to us and how he wants to continue to be good to us in the ways that we love him, care for our neighbor, and serve the body. And so the Proverbs, uh, they are a wonderful set of teachings in the Old Testament that really highlight what I'm talking about today. And they are packed with what, what could really be qualified as uh, very short but deeply powerful wisdoms. And when they are followed, they have the ability to do something pretty amazing. They can create within us a deeper sense of fulfillment and meaning in our lives. And I will tell you, uh, I, I was not raised a Christian. I, gr I became a Christian in my mid-20s, so I had a, a pretty radical conversion there. However, um, since I have been a believer, and even looking back at the times when I was not a believer, I can tell you meaning is something that I sought in my life. And this is a common human theme, meaning meaning and fulfillment is not an abstract thing in the lives of most people. We long for it. In some senses, it is the food that sustains us. So the Proverbs really give us this great aptitude to know what God says about our lives, how we can tap into the greatest sense of meaning, value, and worth. And today I want to read to you, I want to open the talk by sharing with you Proverbs 29:18, because it really hits the nail on the head on what we have talked about, we'll talk about today. And since we are a church body, we'll flesh out now over these next months. The Proverbs teach us this, where there is no vision, it says, people perish. And there's a synonym used for the concept of perishing. Uh, you might think when we hear the word perish, we tend to think of death. And I guess that is sort of what it's talking about. But it's not talking about necessarily a physical death. It's talking about a, a, a living death. Uh, what happens is people live unrestrained. And what the proverb is saying there is that we get to this place where we might like, bi biologically be alive, but we're not actually living in such a way that we have vibrancy in our lives. We start to live in unrestrained ways when there is no flag in the hill, when there is nothing to look forward to in life. But in contrast, the proverb also says, blessed are those who keep the law. And the law here would be the ideas and the truths and the ways of God. Blessed are those who follow the ways of God. So there's this deep contrast. Without vision, we perish. With vision, we tend to press into meaning and worth. The idea behind that proverb is that if you have nothing to strive for in life, then you will likely drift towards apathy. 
You will live for, this is a statement we use here a lot, you will live for the, uh, the, the moment at the expense of the eternal. You will not be able to see the forest from the trees. And this is certainly true in our individual lives. If any of you have ever been in a season of, of blueness, you know, we've had those moments where we look at our lives and maybe they're just not where we would like them to be. Uh, individually, we have some stuff going on. And I would also say in a compounding way, your individual beliefs, your ideas, your attitudes, your understanding of who you are in Christ and what you're doing in life, these things compound when we get together in these local bodies that the scripture calls churches. Just like your family, whether you are raising one, being raised by one, or on the verge of having one, or were in one, a family is made up of a group of individuals. And their individual personalities, traits, skills, challenges, problems, all this creates a, a dynamic and the dynamic in the church is that who we are as individuals shapes the corporate body. And so this proverbial wisdom is what I would like us to have in mind as we prepare our hearts to receive what I want to share with you again today. Because today is the day in the life of our church where we have our annual vision provision talk. And this is kind of like the State of a Union address for our church. And State of the Union meaning in, in a biblical sense it's the state of the local church. It's, it's the kingdom address where we begin to look at who we are as a corporate body and figure out where we're going. And this is important. We do this two times a year and for, with different nuances, you might say. In October, when we celebrate our anniversary, we launched Restoration October 10th, 2010. And so that weekend, we always celebrate another, another year of God working through us. And we talk about objectives and ideas and where we're going. But in, in January, we set an agenda for the future of our year. And so what I want to talk about today is where we're actually going to be heading. And every time we give this talk, it is important because it is how we fight what Proverbs 29 tells us to stay away from. This type of a talk is how we get to the place where we are pressing into finding meaning and fulfillment in loving and serving God and our neighbor and not drifting towards apathy in the Christian faith. We don't ever want that. We don't ever want to serve a God who claims to be a God of life. And we actually then have none of that in us. There's a, there's a contradiction there. So this talk is always important, but it's, it's sort of extra important this year. And I would take it even further by saying this season, because this is actually a pretty amazing season in the life of our church family. We are now pushing into the, we're six years old, pushing into the seven year mark. And so what this says is it, it firmly declares that our church has a history of health, of vibrancy, of growth, of sustainability, and of ministry progress. In other words, I'm saying God has had a history of doing stuff here through us. And that is something for us to be thankful for. Our talk today is an evidence. We're, we're talking about the future because God has given us a pretty robust past. And I believe this with all my heart, that if we continue to remain faithful to our primary objective as a church, and that is to help people find Christ, grow in Him, to make disciples, it's to help those of you who want to grow in Jesus do that, and to help those who are trying to figure out who Jesus is to figure that out, then God's favor will rest upon us because God loves nothing more than for people to love his son and to know who his son is and to give him the glory that he is due because of the love he showed us on the cross. And so today's talk defines much of what we'll be focusing on now as we are firmly on the other side of the five-year mark. And this is important because in, in 2017, I want us to think about personal examination. This is something we do on an individual level and certainly at, on a corporate level. I, I hope that this year will be the year that you, as, long, as well as me, we spend some time focusing on who we are in God, figuring out who he is and what he has done for us, and asking how the identity of our Father in heaven shapes our identity on earth. How does who God is and what he has done for us shape who we are and what we do uh, for others? This matters in your own life because it matters in what you do in this church. Let me explain what I mean by that. 
How you answer these questions personally shape a body corporately. How we function as disciples individually shapes how our church functions as a disciple-making family. And so we are on the side of history where churches or people develop habits, long-term cultures, I like to call them. And I want to make sure as we move forward that we have good habits. Okay, You think about that. If you do something for a certain amount of time, it likely becomes a perpetual habit. Same is true with the church body. And we have very healthy habits here, lots of them. But we want to make sure that as we move forward, we don't drift into the unhealthy ones. And so we're going to focus on three basic but incredibly important priorities today, which I'm going to share with you on the back end of this talk. Big picture steps, you might say, that help us to identify what a church has to be doing in order to continue to practice a culture of helping people find Jesus and grow in him, the culture of making disciples. And I want to do this because ultimately... Uh, Our church, think about this, our church, even though it's ours and we've been given the responsibility to shepherd it and steward it, our church is ultimately God's. There's this interesting tension that takes place here where in Scripture, the the possessive agent of the church is God. It's his. He died for it and built it upon the blood of his son. Yet for 2,000 years, he has been using people like you and me to shepherd it and to to develop it and to to work in it and, and to serve the world through it. In the truest sense, just like in your family, we all have a major role to play in keeping this family healthy. And so we begin this morning really by talking about what makes a story a good story. If you read books or watch film or even tell a good story or enjoy hearing a good story, there is a common theme that makes a blockbuster film or movie a blockbuster film or movie. There is always two main elements to it. There are a group of main characters or people in the story who are trying to overcome a very significant problem in the story. Okay? There's always some, some big bad wolf out there, what, what literature calls an antagonist. You know, Rightfully so. It's the person antagonizing the good stuff that's trying to happen. But there is also in the story something called a protagonist. And that is the person who is actually working towards bringing about goodness in a very difficult situation. So for all, in order for us to understand what it means to be the protagonist in God's kingdom, what it means to be the agent of goodness and change, we have to understand what the challenge is first. We have to identify what the issue will be keeping us from doing this. And we just read this in, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. We all have something we have to overcome as a family. And it's the first thing I want to talk to you about this morning. To be a church that God uses to change the world, we must get comfortable with hard work and sacrifice. By change the world, I don't mean some grandiose idea. I mean, obviously, I would hope for that. But by changing the world, that means the interactions you have with people in your own life and the interaction you have with God in your own life has the ability to make change in the world you live in. And that's a pretty awesome thought and a major responsibility. And it stems directly from Jesus. So, you know, I'm not making this stuff up. Matthew 9, 35 through 38. I'll reread it to you. Here's what he says. We see Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Jesus is doing what Jesus does. He is living his life and serving God. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, he says. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. There is the antagonist, the protagonist. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And so here Jesus teaches us something, something very important about the kingdom. He teaches us that farming is the best way to describe the challenges the church family will face as we serve God. He is walking around his, his world and has a deep burden for the people that he sees are sheep without a shepherd, those who are without him and his love and his goodness and his grace. 
And this farming analogy that he uses here, laborers in the harvest field, is an incredibly common one in the Bible, but one that is absolutely not common for most of us anymore today. So I want to share with you a story about a, a show I began watching a few years ago with my son. It's a show that followed a family in Alaska, and this is kind of thematic across pop culture right now. I would say you have a lot of shows like this on TV now, but this was sort of the inaugural one that began showing people who live a, a, a sort of like first century lifestyle, subsistence living. They live off the land, and if they don't raise food or harvest animals, they die. They basically don't have a Publix to go to, like you and I do on a cold day if, it's, if we're hungry. And so this, this group of people, they had been on this plot of land in Alaska for almost 100 years, a little over 80 years. And the show was kind of entertaining at first because I'd never had a, a strong understanding of an agrarian culture. I grew up, uh, spent a, a, my, my childhood in New York, in Brooklyn. I lived here for a few years in the 90s. And then I lived in New Orleans, none of which had large farming communities in those urban areas. And so this was not something, historically in school, I did a lot of study on this, but I'd never seen like what the sweat of the brow looked like to actually do day-to-day -day agrarian farming, the kind the Bible talks about regularly. And so in the Bible, the, the farm is one of the most common metaphors used to describe what our work in the, in the local church looks like. We don't farm at all today, yet the Bible uses farming as one of the primary descriptions to show us what we're called to do. So we have a, a cultural disconnect here. I mean, unless you are farming. I don't know of any of you that are, right? Because we have these, these amenities in our lives. So, for example, when you want to eat, think about this. What does eating look like in your life? Uh, whatever you want to have for supper tonight, it is very likely, like maybe you said, I would like to have hamburgers tonight. I am going to bet good money that in your trunk of your car right now is not a rifle and camouflage clothing. You're not going to walk out after this, this uh, worship gathering we have, go to your car, grab your rifle, drive into the woods, and shoot a cow. You could tell I don't hunt because people don't really shoot cows like that. This is totally breaking down in my head, right? You, you, I'm so sorry. <laughs> sorry. Okay, now I'm getting insecure. You're laughing too much at me. You're going to back it up here. <laughs> you, you, you don't ever see that at the FFA fair, right? Gold ribbon, the dude hunted a cow. It doesn't work that way. But if you want a cow, if you want to eat meat or chicken or whatever it is, you, you typically are not going to go hunt this stuff. Yeah, milk, right? I, I know how to hunt milk because it costs $3 a gallon. That's how I figured it out. You have and I have these these places in our lives where, where we go to stay alive, right? We, we subsist in a very different way, and it is the, the benefit and the byproduct of a highly industrialized society, okay? No longer, although there are farmers doing this, don't get me wrong, there is somebody right now in a field getting your milk ready for next week. Uh, we, on the receiving end, we pay a financial premium. We pay the industrial price to have somebody else do the agrarian work, and that's why I say this illustration is going to break, break down, right? So we don't have to do this anymore. But it's interesting that Jesus uses this analogy to show us what life looks like on, on, on the farm of the, the, the kingdom farm or in his, his church. One of the things that this, the people in the show say regularly is that there is always, always more work on the farm than there are people to get it done. So the idea is a common sentiment in the agrarian world. There's always an early rise and a late day. Uh, and here is the exact principle Jesus talks about when he highlights the, the responsibility of the field and the fact that there is a shortage in laboring. 
And so all of this is, is being said to give us an understanding of this concept. The better we understand the reality of what farming in the Bible looks like, the better equipped we'll be to understand our responsibility in the modern church. In other words, we have to put our farming caps on for a little bit. And this is the point Jesus is trying to show us in Matthew. He is saying the norm in his day is that, uh, and it's a norm that persists to this very day. We read these teachings today because they still matter. Is that there's always going to be more work to do in God's kingdom and through his local church and in the harvest field of the world than there are going to be willing workers to do it. However, he is also saying that just because this is true, this is not like a doomsday prophecy. He then does not hang his head and go home. He says this with, with a, a scriptural confidence here. And he is saying, listen, the reality is there's going to be a challenge in doing my work. But I want you to not focus on the challenge, on the antagonist. I want you to think about being a type of person who creates a different reality. So he says the way we create a different reality is we pray for that paradigm to change. And then we become the types of people who work in the field to bring about that change. One of the ways that God answers the prayer that Jesus literally tells us to pray. He says, there are not enough workers for my harvest field. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will change that. One of the ways that, is, that happens is by God raising a people. But you can never exempt yourself from the, from the people's being raised up. God is going to raise you up in the same way. Because he desires you to be in the field in the same way he desires those for whom you are praying for to be in the field. And so what this means, and the reason why it gives us a... a a a proverbial no pun intended a proverbial meaning in life like what proverbs says we have meaning now because it means for your life and for my life jesus is calling you to be a person that changes a very dire reality he's changing you or causing you to change this worker harvest reality his command to us in matthew is what i want to reissue to us today on the precipice of what i believe is a really great future that lays ahead of us On one hand, through it, I want us to be encouraged. I don't want you to just hear what he's saying here and thinking about tomorrow. That's important, and we'll get there. I want you to think about yesteryear. The fact that we're giving this talk shows us that there has been a history of men and women standing up and laboring in the field, doing great things for God. It's been amazing. Uh, Every year around our anniversary, we give you like this annual report of people who have come to Jesus families who have dedicated their children to Jesus, folks who have been baptized, the kinds of uh, ministry and missions you guys are all involved in. Certainly we have uh, several at our church that are official, you might say. But what always excites me even more than that are the unofficial things all of you do when you leave this place. There's a great presence of, of commitment here. There's a great presence in our body of fidelity here, of health, when it comes to working the field for Jesus in this place and outside of it. It is not perfect by no, any means, but it, there, it, is, it is faithful. And so we want to be thankful for that, but we also don't want to rest on the laurel of that. That's why Jesus tells us this. I never want us to forget on the other side of the coin that there is always room for every one of us to grow in this area. And maybe some of you are here, hearing this now and you're saying, well, I actually haven't really been a part of any of that stuff. How do I become a part of that? For, for you, this talk has a different application this morning. Maybe it's not, you're not growing at all in this area, but you hear this and you start to sense the warning Jesus gives us in this. That if we rest in the fact that we don't want to labor for his kingdom, then what happens is we will likely slip in that area. And in the context of a church, that can actually hurt things. In the context of the people that God has put in your life, that can hurt things. If your neighbor has need and you care not enough to to serve that need, that can hurt somebody. Now, sometimes churches struggle with the unhealthy side of this worker harvest reality. Let's dip into this for a moment. 
because we reach new people. That happens a lot. Uh, for some people who just come to Jesus, they have no idea that this is even in Scripture. And so this is why it's important that we be a church that makes disciples. We want folks to understand that in the way somebody labored for them, God calls them to labor for somebody else. Sometimes it just takes time for people to grow into these concepts and to understand them. And that is great. We love that. We, we recognize a restoration that the, the Christian faith is a journey. It begins in a place, and it will spend the rest of our lives growing in Christ. So we make great space for that. Others, though, uh, especially for those of you that might have a very strong Christian background, and that's a good thing. I don't say that in a negative way here. Sometimes we might have been involved in church bodies or in cultures where we have to unlearn some of the stuff that we learn. Maybe the stuff sounded good on paper but disagreed with what Jesus says here. Uh, In the modern Western world, there's a great confluence of people who see the kingdom of God and the church and Jesus as he's like a cosmic gumball dispenser who exists to distribute religious goods and services. In other words, they hyper consume the field at the expense of serving the field. And as you know, uh, your refrigerator, if it is not stocked on a regular basis, at some point will stop feeding you. Right. There can be an imbalance in how much you take out of something uh, and its ability to provide for you. So for some folks, what has to happen is they they have to make the shift in understanding that Jesus gives his life in whole for you. He gives it all for you and I. But that should cause us over time to reciprocate a very certain type of gospel attitude. We should begin for the rest of our days learning what it means to give our whole life back to him. That's not an easy thing, but it certainly is a thing that is, should be present in the life of, of the Christian. And so what happens here is Jesus makes it explicitly clear. That God's plan for his people is that we are all working the field. We have different nuances, different skills, abilities, and gifts. We'll get to that here in a moment. But nonetheless, uh, the field should be a priority for us. And even though some of this work or however reality is present in every church and and is present here, I mean, we've had a good, faithful uh, track record of this. We also have needs. I mention them regularly. We have needs right now in the kids' ministry. For uh, we're, we're praying about a, a new teacher over there. There are always opportunities to serve in every ministry on-site and mission off-site. So we don't want to say, oh, we're good. We want to give thanks for being good. But we also want to raise up new people constantly. Because if we don't, what happens is we will likely embrace uh, in a benevolent way the disproportionate issue Jesus talks about here. If we ever forget these types of teachings, the needs of the church, the needs of the field, the needs of our neighbor can begin to grow disproportionately greater than those of us committed to working the church, the field, and the needs of our neighbor. And when that happens, something very problematic happens. The faithful tend to get tired because the laborers will start to work harder to fill the gaps. Let me explain what I mean by this. Um, Essentially, if you love something or someone... Okay, think about your your family, especially if you have children. Um, this this changed for me. I had my first kid uh, just shy of eleven years ago. My son now looks like a grown man. He's eleven, uh, and he is like a a little man. He's almost as tall as me. And as he has grown, uh, as have my daughters, as they have grown, they start to need you less in certain ways, but need you more in other ways. It's been interesting watching the physical need is less, but the emotional need becomes greater. But through all of this, something has happened in us with my wife and I. I can tell you that uh, we have probably never worked harder in our life in any season of life than this one now since we've had children. When you see where there is a gap or a problem or something missing, you know, your default out of love is to fill in the gap and, and to make it work, to fix it, right? 
there's something right about that as far as parenting goes. And there's something even sort of noble about it when we talk about the work of the kingdom. When we who love Jesus see problems or, or issues or holes in the flanks and we get up in the mix and we want to make that right and fill that gap, that's very good. But I, I also want to tell you, just like parenting or serving the kingdom, that is not fully sustainable. Meaning there is never a person who can fill every hole and gap in life forever. There is a nobility in bearing load when necessary. But there's also a, a fragility. I didn't mean to rhyme there, but it happened. There's a fragility in thinking that you can solve every need all the time on your own. Eventually what happens is the pressures of that will burn you out. Now that's a conversation for another day. Um, when we talk about the word burnout, there's a lot of misnomers, I think, connected to that word in culture. And sometimes that word is actually used to to perpetuate negligent behavior. So when we talk about true burnout, abusive burnout, that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, that, excuse me, that that is what we're talking about here. What we want to do is create a place where needs are then mutually met by other folks. And I'll be transparent. I shared this with you last week and I want to do it again. Uh, Restoration is about to be seven years old in October. But for my wife and I, this is a nine-year journey. Uh, and you might say, well, if restoration is only going to be seven, not even seven yet, how can this have been a nine-year journey? Well, the truth is that this, the dialogues about restoration began in 2007 when I was sitting in an office in New Orleans on the west side of the city talking about what it would mean to maybe start a church here. And so for us, the journey started in 2008, really, when we got in a car and, and moved our family here. And the, the process of serving the kingdom and serving your family can be fatiguing and tiring at times. But I, I want to explain and share a little bit about, about the fatigue I'm talking about. Um, just being honest, this last year was a bit of a tiring season for a lot of us. It was a challenging year, but tiring in a good way. And I want to explain what I mean by that. Uh, if you've ever worked a long day or, or done something that you really feel like it mattered, like you, in your vocation, whatever that is, you, you invested in a project, or if you're in a service industry, you, you know, you, you've been giving your all to something, and you, you're tired and exhausted, and you want to sleep a little bit afterwards, but you, you kind of wake up and know, like, that was good, like the sweat equity I put into that mattered. That's kind of where we have been for a while, and it's where many of you have been, and just talking through this with you. Uh, it's it's fatigue or tire, tiring, not like with the end game being tiring or fatigue burnout, but with this concept of a subtle but growing hope for the future of our church and the partnership that we have together to continue to work in the field. When you start seeing fruit or things happening, you start getting to this place where you get excited about what is going on. And so what I want to say here is it is okay to be tired. It is okay to be at seasons in your life where you have worked a long day in the field and you need space to breathe and rest. But I want to say that the space and the breathing and the resting, if that becomes your end game in life, becomes the antagonist. And then we begin to undermine the very teaching Jesus gives us here. And so I'll leave you with this in this section anyways, that um, today I really want to say this, that I have spent months thinking about this and praying about this and in a very vibrant way seeking God in this area um, about what it means to be tired, how you move on. And I can tell you today that I don't really feel tired anymore. You might be saying, well, that's because you're a caffeinated kid from Brooklyn and you're always hyper. And that's partially part of it. But the other part is that um, I've really been seeking a vigor from the Lord and asking him to re-excite me and to help me see what his direction is for us. And, and that has been somewhat contagious with several of you. And so I want to tell you today that I don't really feel tired anymore. And so what it means is after we've worked a long day in the field, which many of us have, we have to then begin asking, what does the journey mean for tomorrow? So this today, and especially where we're about to go, is an invitation for you 
to, to get on the journey with us. It's to think about what it means to embark on this next phase of ministry. Consider this the day we, we issue the clarion call to think, pray, and process what it means to act on behalf of God and his kingdom tomorrow. And this leads me to the, the second idea I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to share with you three action steps uh, that I want you to pray about this morning. If you came here from last week, your, your challenge is a little different. You have been praying about this. This morning when you hear these things, your job is to say, what does God now want me to do about these things? If you have been here, if this is your first time here today, then I want you to think about what it means to pray about these things this week. Okay? Because it's important to know if we recognize there is an antagonist in the Christian faith, there is a harvest a laborer disproportion, then what that means is we as God's people have to ask which side of the spectrum do we want to fall on. Do we want to antagonize or be the protagonist? And that is the other part of a good story. We would not want to read stories if they always ended in dismal despair. And the story of God's kingdom is not dismal despair. It is always God using his, his kingdom and his people to do great things in the name of his son. The characters in that story, the thing that makes the story good is that the, they commit to work with each other to defeat a, a problem. And that is really where our energies are invested for the rest of our morning. That's us. And there are three things we can do to fight against this in 2017. Here, are they, here they are. Three priorities, you might say. That, uh, the three steps that will help you to move towards a deeper level of love for Jesus and commitment to his mission at restoration. The first is, is kind of an obvious one, but an important one. We want to connect with new people in our worship gathering on Sunday. And we have a, a very particular, I don't, I don't want to say particular, meaning we're the only people that have this theology. But I think our, our partnerships and our belief about the gathering are very, are very explicit, they're very clear. Meaning for a great many Christians, this, this day, this hour is the climax of their faith. They live all week to get to it, and they should because it's exciting. But then after this, that's it. It's, it's sort of like Christianity is a one-hour event each week. And what I want to share with you is that there is no denying the importance that Scripture teaches us about the gathering of the body, okay? About what it means for us to corporately worship each other. Oh, excuse me. That's really bad. Worship God with, uh, with each other. Yeah, we don't want to worship each other. I'm going to say that three times because this is recorded for all of eternity on the Internet, all right? We worship God with each other. So what, what happens here is the reason Scripture says that is not so that we can leapfrog week to week, and just kind of have a touch point with the faith. It is that this time here, according to the scripture, it is a spiritual formation. And what, what I mean by that is, it is one of the ways we grow in our love for Jesus, each other, and our neighbor. What we talk about in this room and what we flesh out in our community groups as we leave this room, for those of you engaged in community groups, really begins to set the, the, the stage and the accountability points for how we process this stuff in life. When I tell you in a moment I want you to be praying about two people that don't know Jesus in your life, my hope is that you don't ever hear about this again. It's that you then move into a community of people who are wrestling with this same challenge. So in this upcoming year, we want to ask you to consider making it a priority to worship faithfully with us. We're making continued investments in our gathering. Most of you know we're still looking for a more permanent space, and God has just not provided that yet. We've, we've looked at everything and can't find anything. So until that time, we're going to make do here. We're going to love God well in this space and give thanks for a great place to worship him. And by worship, I mean it's synonymous for us forming in the gospel through him. And here's why this is important. Just like in Acts, we see this time the corporate gathering is crucial to the church family. It is a spiritual formation, a time for us to grow in Jesus together by worshiping God, studying the scripture, loving each other, and challenging each other to live on mission for Jesus after we leave this place. 
So make an investment in your own life and make an investment in the life of another person. Invite them here. And I want, I want to issue one last caveat connected to this. When I say invest and invite uh, and invite people to see the body, it is very likely that the type of person who will be more receptive to this is a person who is already somebody that is in the faith or is close to it. Maybe even one looking for a church family. So please know this is a good thing. We believe, whether it's here or someplace else, we want all people that love Jesus connected to a healthy church body that is teaching the gospel and fleshing it out in life. And so as God brings people here or you invite people here, one of the things we pray for is as folks move into the area or connect in an area, that they find a place to plug in and serve the Lord of the harvest. We want them to have a, a larger family to help change the world through. We want to pray for that and labor towards that. And so as, as we, we stop here for a moment, it is important to know that there are going to be people in your life ready for this step. And so I want you to think about this. This past week, I asked you to think about, have you been, in, have you been faithful to worship? Are you investing in and inviting people? Are you making a kingdom deposit in others' lives? If you've come here today and you have questions about that, if you were here last week, I want you to make it a point to notate that on your connection card. If you're here saying, I don't know how to do this, I don't know how to invest and invite, I want you to be honest with that with us. Notate that on your connection card because we're going to develop some primary uh, teachings of this. We're actually going to create some additional spaces outside of Sunday to equip you in that area. If you're here today and you're saying, well, you know, I've been, this is my first time in church. Or I haven't been in a long time. And you're saying things about like church to me was just Sunday. You're talking about like God's theology of the church. I don't even understand what you mean. That's okay. We love people that want to know this stuff and grow in this stuff. If you want to know what, what I'm even talking about right now, Notate that on your card and let us follow up with you to help you understand a deeper level of ecclesiology, what God says about his gathered people and the effect we have on the world when we understand who we are in him. So I want you to use this space this morning to notate that on your card because it is important that this becomes a priority for us. Uh, The second thing we want to do, and this is deeply connected to the first, but the exact opposite, okay, is that we want to equip and train any single person who wants to learn how to intentionally build meaningful relationships with the people in your life who do not know Jesus. Oftentimes, church growth in America is not what we call new growth. It's essentially people moving around, and that's not a bad thing, but that's not the only thing Jesus talks about. And it actually, if left unchecked, can become a very bad thing. It starts to destabilize local church families. So when I say, hey, think about inviting somebody to the worship gathering, that is likely going to be somebody who has a presupposition that is positive towards Christianity. But there are also people in your life who maybe have no affinity or maybe even a negative outlook on the faith. We all have those people in our lives. And all of us at some point were those people. This is why what I'm about to say is so important. There are seasons in our life when we look back, or a very lengthy season, when we were not in Jesus. There's a point in our lives where we chose to follow him. So you almost have to get in that shoe again to have the kind of burden that Jesus has in Matthew. He looks at that type of person, that crowd, and he does not you know, cast judgment. There's nothing but compassion that he shows there. And so for a great many people in your life, you might say, I know people in my life that don't know Jesus, but I don't actually have any intentional desire or I have a desire, but I just don't know how to connect with them. What I want to say is that this is the year we want to deepen our understanding of what that means, of what it means for you to recognize your life, your family, your job. These are not random coincidences. God has made you who you are and put you in a place for a reason. Whatever you do vocationally, you have been planted in a place to bloom for him. And we want you to do that in a way that is respectful and caring. I say this a lot here. We, 
We don't practice creepy Christianity here, meaning I don't want you to be weird. And there are a lot of people who can do this when they start embracing a love for God. They just get a little creepy. Like, I love what you're saying, but you're super weird. Now get out of my house. We don't want that to happen. We want you to understand what it means to to labor well in what you do and to be a light for Jesus when he gives you the space. That's what I mean here. If you're here saying, listen, last week, Anthony, you challenged us to think about do I have two people in my life right now, the power of two, that's what I'm calling this, do, we have, do I have two people in my life right now that do not know Jesus? I guarantee you every single one of us has that. The bigger question, though, is do I have two people in my life right now that I am intentionally trying to figure out and praying to the Lord of the harvest to come to know Jesus? Am I at the place where the burden now says, that's a, shepherd, uh, that's a sheep without a shepherd? That's the difference here. Most of us know people. Whether or not we're laboring for that person in the name of Jesus is a different story. And if you're not, there's no judgment here. Because I'm telling you, six months ago, I had this epiphany. I, I, I just came to this place where I realized I knew a lot of people that didn't know Jesus, but I had not been laboring for them the way Jesus says here. This happens to all of us at all times. And our community is a community of grace. So we don't want people to feel ostracized for this. We want you to say, you know what, it's been a rough year, but I want to figure out how to get back on track. We want to support you in that. We want the power of two to be something written on your, on, on your uh, mind and etched into the tablet of your heart. So think about this. If you have come to this place this week, having been here last week, and you've said, I don't really have people in my life that know Jesus, but I want to know, please write on that card. You don't even have to put your name on it. Just say, interested in learning how to share my faith or whatever. And we'll, we'll take that information and we'll figure out how to craft a new, a new form for this. If you're here saying, I have people in my life and I just don't know what to do, or I have lots of people in my life, wherever you are at here, wherever, if you're here today hearing this message for the first time and you're going to wrestle with this this week, I just encourage you to be honest with God. He already knows. And to be honest with yourself because the kingdom moves forward through us. God can do this without us. I say this all the time. He is not bound by any law he puts on himself to use us, but yet he chooses to use us. So we ought to think about what that means. He can do this without us, but chooses not to do this without us. It puts meaning and ownership in our faith again. And I pray that you will, you will have some meaning and ownership when it comes to uh, loving your Lord in a way that loves your neighbor. The two greatest commands. So, lastly, the last thing I'll mention today. Uh, and this is kind of a, it's a catch-all, but I think it's an important one. As we, as we talk about the importance of uh, seriously taking spiritual formation seriously, getting to a place where we're growing in our faith, getting to a place where we're sharing our faith. The last thing I want to ask you to pray about or consider what your action step is today is what it means to pursue any opportunity God provides you to love and serve our church, neighbor, and city with. So when we talk about growing in your faith and sharing the gospel, uh, typically this is not going to be, you're not going to get an email from somebody on this. What's very likely going to happen is in very natural ways, God is going to present you opportunities. This is what happens with our church. And so it's important for us to recognize this because we want our church to continue to be a great blessing to the people of our city, wherever we are and wherever God leads us. The way you become a blessing like this is by praying about and picking up your shovel and working the harvest field. Here's the thing is if you start praying these first two things and God starts providing you opportunity, but you've not made the decision yet about where, whether you are laboring for the harvest or not laboring at all, you're going to miss the opportunity. And I want to explain to you um, the two primary ways that God will ask you to serve him. They're big ones, time and resources. So in the Bible, the two most common areas that God calls us to commit to work the harvest field with is our time and our money. And when we speak about time and money, I have series on the website on time and money. 
they tend to be a bit controversial. Not because the church is talking about money. That's actually not our issue here. It's because in the Western mind in North America, time and money are considered absolutely off-limit items. They are privatized things, much like politics have become. They're almost things that you're not supposed to talk about. Like, don't tell me about what I'm doing with these things. The problem with this is that in Scripture, they're not off-limits. And that's why it is important for us to have a Christ-centered understanding of what these things mean. And this goes back to, reason being, goes back to what I said earlier in this talk. The idea of being a disciple is that a person gives their life to Jesus. It's a decision that we make, and it is not one that you are forced to make. There is a volition here. There's a, there's a desire in God. And when God says something to you, what you do tomorrow, you, there's a reciprocity there. Like if he says, love your neighbor, you can actually go home and not do that. So when I say volition, what I mean is the choice to follow Jesus actually signifies a pursuit of lordship. And by, by seeing Jesus as Lord, what that means is we spend the rest of our days growing in our desire to give back our whole life to him. And so the Christian cannot say, I, uh, <laughs> it's kind of like the great classic uh, rock song from Cheap Trick where they say, surrender, but don't give yourself away. That's kind of what happens here. We get to this place where we say, I'm surrendering all to you, Jesus, uh, except for my morality, uh, my time, uh, m- my money. Uh, I'm, I'm actually just going to surrender something to you, but not all of it. And I'm, that doesn't happen overnight. But the idea of surrender and pursuit of Jesus means we spend our days learning to grow in all of these areas. And so when we say we can't talk about these things, it's a problem. And here's why theologically it's a problem. Uh, personal time and resources, it's a theological and a practical problem. Personal time and resources are two of the most sacred and privatized commodities in the life of an American. Not surprisingly, in Scripture, they're identified as two of the greatest potential idols that can replace Jesus as the king of your life. Very commonly, uh, time and money are tools that we start to serve. They own us. Uh, that's why I did a series two years ago on busyness. Time starts owning you and you serve it. Your time was not meant to be used that way. Or money is the same way. Sometimes we're, we're marred by debt or we have uh, improper understandings of biblical generosity and a tool God puts on earth that should serve us, right? A tool given to us to serve God, sustain ourselves and bless others. We, we are like noosed to it. It's, it's like a leash around our neck. That is not the way anything in life is supposed to be for us. The pursuit of Jesus means freedom in life. So we should serve nothing in life but him. And so in light of this, we shouldn't be surprised that God unashamedly asks us to set aside some of that which matters most to him in the same way he gave up something that mattered most uh, to himself, right? It's, it's for us. We give up what matters most to us because Jesus is what matters most to God. And his son is given fully and wholly on the cross for us. If you need a motivation to use your time and your resources, and when I say resources, I'm not, there's no bound to this. And caring for people, it's because of that. God spared nothing, no expense when he died for you and me. And we have to be careful to not do the, do the opposite. So for the Christian, the way you use your time, your talents, your treasure, it is a direct reflection of how deeply you understand Jesus' love. It is a call to follow him that requires we practice a sacrificial generosity with our time and our abilities. And the Bible has a great deal to say about this in the work of the kingdom. In fact, it's pretty clear that God gives every individual believer a spiritual gift when they come to faith in Christ. When I say using your time, what I'm saying is God's made you something great to be used for him. Every person has a a wiring, a gifting, an ability. And if you're here saying, I don't know what that wiring, gifting, or ability is, put that on that card because we want to help you figure that out this year. Most likely, it's in something you're already doing. 
you're in sales or you love people or you're just an administrative machine uh, or you love coaching baseball or whatever it is, it is very likely what you are doing now has a direct kingdom correlation. Whether or not the Holy Spirit has thrown that light switch in your heart is a different story. But I promise you, every one of you in Christ has something he wants you to do for him and a unique gift and tool to use for him. And when we as individuals use these things together corporately as a body, we begin to reflect the whole nature of who Jesus is. The reason we don't all get every gift is because we'd probably get pretty proud. And only one person had every, had every gift. It's Jesus, right? So when we function as a church family, all the gifts are present under one roof. And then we use these gifts to physically and spiritually represent Jesus. So I guess what I want to say here is, it, it, what this means is if you, if you in your life can think, and you don't have a desire at all, or maybe a little little desire, a waning desire, to use your gifts to minister to the physical and spiritual needs of others, it is likely saying something about how you understand who Jesus is in your own life. And most likely, it could reflect uh, a lack of a desire to, pu- to pursue Jesus um, as his disciple. And this same uh, principle is paralleled when we look at our resources, because God desires us to bless others with our money too. And typically when we talk about money or tithing in a sermon, uh, which is rare here, this does not happen a lot, um, I give you this disclaimer. Uh, some of you have been with us like, from the beginning. I mean, some of you, it's amazing. We've, we've raised your children here. You've been with us from day one. And you know that um, we, have a very cert- we have a very important motivational structure we use to create action. And it's not guilt or fear or shame. It's gospel vitality. In other words, we want you to, everything you do, we want you to do it because you understand what Jesus has done for you. That's actually how Paul writes about money in the Corinthian letters. And so one of the things that I always want to point out here is that a great many of you like our church because we don't beat you to death about these things. However, I I want to tell you something about this because I don't want to create a false narrative here. And restoration, it's not that we don't talk about time or money. Uh, particular money. It's just that when we do, we, we want it to be in ways that honor Jesus and don't create man-made structures of motivation. And in some ways, I do believe this. I say this a lot too. I think we're too silent on this. Uh, I've had several conversations with you over the years. Uh, it's not, we're not even talking about tithing here right now. We're talking about people saying, I have a lot of debt and I actually don't understand gospel principles for generosity. Or you're saying, I would actually like to be more generous, but I've seen a lot of abuses in the world here. Or you're saying, I don't know at all what the Bible teaches about money. I didn't even know that that stuff was in there. There is a reason God lays out these things in scripture and gives us a gospel understanding of them. There's, there's a reason we should want to learn these principles. And so it's important for us to understand the scriptural truth behind these things. And so this year, when we talk about time and resources and serving God and loving your neighbor and growing in him, uh, I want to challenge you to ask yourself if you are supporting the work of the ministry in these areas uh, with your time, your talents and treasures. And I need to say this. I'm going to be like verbatim on this. I'm going to read it off my notes in the way I said it last week. Um, what I'm saying to you now is not a plea out of desperation. I'm not saying this to you because everything we have is falling apart and we have terrible tithing here. We have terrible, uh, terrible record of generosity here. We don't. I say this to you from a position of strength, meaning this year again, our church, fi- we finished in the black. We, we finished uh, receiving more offering than we spent. Now, we have a very strong uh, fiscal discipline here. But it shows us that this is not desperation. You guys already have a faithful track record of using your time, your talents, and your treasures for God. This is not an offhanded slight. It's me just reminding us what Jesus says. We want to make sure that as we think about the future, we sustain this and grow in this. Because we want to see greater, uh, greater influence for his kingdom. 
And I want to thank you for that. Um, it's it's true that I get out here and say, this is a good job this year. Thank you for your labor in God's kingdom. It was not a perfect job, and there's room to grow. We did it, used us in a pretty powerful way. Thank you for that. But I don't want to just say thank you, period. I want to say thank you, comma. I want us to think about and to be challenged in and to pray about whether or not our story last year is our story this year. Ask if you're using your time, talents, and treasures at all in a way that honors God. Ask if it's time to shift a time or talent or treasure. Maybe you're here wanting to serve, but you don't know. Whatever it is, I want you during our response time to pray about this and ask yourself, if you were here last week, what is the possible action step? Listen, when I say we have a need in kids or we want you to understand what it means to serve your neighbor and you're sitting here saying, I know somebody who's very far from God on my block and I have a, uh, I've got a lot of experience serving kids, we want you to step up. We want you to think about stepping up to look into this with us. Because as we, as we close this morning and move into a new year of ministry and mission, please know this, that we cannot, nor does God desire to accomplish this without you or me. If he did, we would not need to be here right now. He would be doing this all on his own. But he has set us apart for a great purpose, and I pray that you will accept the invitation to that journey as we press into making these three goals, which we've talked about somewhat in a brief way this morning. These are goals that we want to see reality this upcoming year. We want to see all of you that want to know how to use a gift using a gift. We want to provide that space for you. We want to see you loving God and neighbor, serving him. Ask yourself, this, this year, it, it truly is my prayer that we would reflect on what God has done for us in Christ and what we would honestly let him speak to us. This is the key, honestly. Recognize this morning what God has done for you and ask yourself, uh, are, you, are you serving and loving your neighbor in the same way? Is, does the love and the care that Jesus has shown you, does that exude out of you? Because that's the ultimate game, the ultimate end game for us as the Christian is that we reflect the grace and the goodness of Christ. So as we close this morning and move into a brief time of meditation, I want you to ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about following him? What is he saying to you about 2017? We're past resolution season. That's why we're having this talk now. Now we get to dig into the reality of what our year looks like. What is he saying to you about following him? And what is it that you will do about it as you leave this place? Pray with me.